Hi, you guys, and welcome to TrailerCast. I am your host, Elise Snipes, and today we are doing a really neat interview. There's actually going to be two people that are joining me today, um, Dr. Tracy Cooper and my dear friend, Andy Lara, and today we are talking about highly sensitive people, both the experience of what it is like to have high sensitivity, what that means, um, how to understand this for yourself as an individual, as a partner, as a parent. Um, it's fascinating, and <laughs> if you want more information, you can just literally just Google the highly sensitive person. There's a lot of information out there and it is highly fascinating. So I'm super excited for you guys to hear this conversation and would love to know your thoughts afterwards. Cheers. Okay, cool. So let's jump in a little bit. Would love to know, um, Dr. Cooper, if you would be willing to introduce yourself and then just give us a brief introduction of what the heck is HSP. Uh, sure. And thanks for inviting me on this, Elise and Andy. Um, happy to talk about HSP, highly sensitive people, as we're known. And a little background on me. I actually did my dissertation on highly sensitive people in career as a topic that actually had nothing done on it except for one book that was a couple of years old. So I tackled that field first, and then I moved on to a couple of things as a result of my dissertation. Uh, one of the things that I did uh, as well, uh, post-dissertation, was I studied high sensation-seeking, highly sensitive people. Mm. So I wrote a second book on that, and this year I've just released a book on the highly sensitive man. So I have three books in circulation. I'm kind of <laughs> following multiple tracks at one time, but uh, I'm focusing as much on highly sensitive men as I am on some of the other areas as well. Phenomenal. Um, do you have a website of people who are listening right now are like, I need to Google this and I need to find out where these <laughs> books are? Sure. Yeah. My website personally is uh, drtracycooper.wordpress.com. And you can find my books on Amazon um, just about anywhere. Good. Good. Okay. Um, had you heard about HSP before your doctoral program? I, I had not. You know, it's funny. I was looking at some of my journals because I've been keeping a journal since I was about 23 and I'm 54 now, so that tells you some length of time. But I was reading just randomly through, and there was an article or a post from, I think, this was handwritten. This wasn't the days of Facebook, you know, of putting everything out there. So randomly, I came across an entry that I posted about my daughter, who was about three, four years old. And I wrote that she's sensitive like me. And this was before I knew anything about it. So, and I just read that recently. So I knew about this a long time ago, intrinsically, without really knowing it explicitly. And I came across it actually uh, during my dissertation journey when another student recommended the book, The Highly Sensitive Person by Dr. Elaine Aaron. And I thought, great, okay, I'll read that maybe because at the time I was interested in introversion. As I found out, there was an awful lot of stuff on that. So there was really, there wasn't a gap for me to really do any original research. And so I finally gravitated back around to that book. I didn't like it at first, said this can't be me, right? and rejected it completely, came back to it in a few months and reread it and thought about it some more. As I understood the construct of sensory processing sensitivity better, then I came to understand that, yes, this is much more complex than just being, say, the stereotype of being easily offended or being somebody that's very touchy or walking on eggshells, that kind of thing. It's kind of the stereotype of overstimulation that people think of with highly sensitive people and only very partially true. There's a much broader sort of construct to it 
And so I can kind of explain those if you'd like. I would love that. And it, it's, I think it's helpful to understand um, the sensory piece of what you're referring to, how introversion fits in. And I'd love to know the gender piece for you, where that kind of rolls into this for you, too. Oh, right. Yeah. So Dr. Elaine Aaron and her husband, uh, Dr. Arthur Aaron, both clinical psychologists, were studying this at uh, Stony Brook, New York um, University in the mid-90s. And they did a big study in 1996-1997 differentiating um, sensory processing sensitivity from emotionality and introversion. So they established this as a separate trait, and they did this through a rigorous series of seven studies. Amazing. And so they developed what's called the highly sensitive person scale, which you may be familiar with, and a self-test that people can take, I believe 27 questions, to see whether you can think of yourself as a highly sensitive person or not. So basically, the trait itself is a normal, naturally occurring neutral trait doesn't imply anything in particular other than these four core sort of aspects. The first of which is uh, depth of processing. So mm -hmm. highly sensitive people tend to think about things in a, in a more elaborate way in the mind. We tend to spend more time in reflection and in thinking about connections and patterns between things that happen. So all stimulation gets processed to a greater degree in the mind. The second is overstimulation. So we have a lower threshold for overexcitation. So that lower threshold means that if we're in an excitable situation, like a bunch of people or say a crowd of people and there's a lot of noise going on, we're gonna be overstimulated before other people do. And we're gonna to need to withdraw. We're gonna feel that need to withdraw. We're gonna feel it in our bodies. So there's a, definitely a somatic um, part to this that you need to recharge sort of in quiet. And other people generally won't understand that part very well, why you become overstimulated before less sensitive people do. And it's simply because you are more highly sensitive than are less sensitive people. Um, the third aspect is high empathy. Highly sensitive people tend to be high in empathy. In other words, we tend to be able to take the position of other people kind of intuitively without even trying. And sometimes we take the position of other people whether we want to or not, which gets to be a problem because it stimulates the overstimulation. It feeds the overstimulation tendency. So learning how to have boundaries for ourselves that are very effective um, is really one of the key things to being uh, a flourishing, highly sensitive person. The other aspect of that uh, tendency with high empathy is the other segment is emotional responsiveness. We tend to have a broader emotional range. So in a sense, it's a psychological sort of androgyny. We tend to have a full spectrum of, a fuller spectrum, I should say, of sort of possible emotional expression. Um, so we can feel many emotions sort of at one time or a broader range than might be possible with less sensitive people. Um, the last sort of core variable is a sensitivity to subtle cues. So we tend to be very good at picking up subtle cues. Uh, we spend more time scanning visual scenes. We notice cues from people, the interpersonal environment, and the trait developed really in the ancestral times. So when we're living in the outdoors and tribes, there was a need for people, um, about 20% of the people, to have this sort of extra bit of sensitivity that provided an advantage on the average. It didn't have to be an advantage in every situation at every time. In fact, it's quite a costly trait when you're spending more time processing and you're spending more energetic energy with this sort of overstimulation tendency. But it provided an advantage on the average and so it remained in the gene pool. And so we still have it today. And it was an advantage in that some people knew a little something extra that enabled the survival of the group. So all of these traits, every personality trait is geared towards two things and really two things only. That is survival and reproduction. So sensory processing sensitivity is simply a naturally occurring neutral trait in and of itself that aided 
human survival in the past and is still with us because really nothing better has come along to take its place. And it's still necessary in our survival. Yeah, That's we, kind of sensory yeah. processing sensitivity mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on this? I, I hear this also through a trauma lens or through the alcoholic family. I'm like, oh, these are all the adult children of alcoholics. These are all people who've needed to survive their, their childhood or their high school or their parents. Uh, well, the thing is with sensitive people that we tend to do far worse than average if we're in a negative environment. So if we face an early childhood that had uh, adverse childhood experiences, we tend to do far worse than average. Because again, we process all stimulation more deeply, all experiences more deeply. So if we had trauma, conflict, abuse, neglect in our childhood, that's going to have a much deeper effect and we're going to, it's going to stay with us throughout our lives in some cases. And that could be, it could be devastating to fulfilling one's mm. potential or having anything resembling a happy life. I mean, the, the episodes of depression, anxiety, all the things that go with that sort of trauma are, are magnified for the highly sensitive person. But conversely, if we enjoy a supportive environment, we tend to do better than average. So that gets into the idea of vantage sensitivity, which is kind of a evolution of sensory processing sensitivity. And simply states that we have a general advantage when we're in a positive environment, but a disadvantage when we're in a negative environment. Hence the sensitivity, right? I'm just more open to the environment that I'm in. I'm absorbing more from this experience, negative or positive. There's just more. More of everything. Yeah, more yeah. of everything. As you can see, it's energetically more taxing and how it could be overstimulating at the same time. And so we always emphasize self-care, the need to have good boundaries, the need to have uh, effective practices that will allow you to de-stress, that allow you to stay away from excessively stressful situations. Hmm. And kind of following and finding the right career, the right relationships, and finally building the right life for yourself. Fascinating. Is there any um, people who have any pain disorders or like the chronic like fatigue? Are we seeing any crossover between people who also have the somatic experience in their body? There are, you know, uh, being sensitive, highly sensitive, because all people are sensitive to some degree, but highly sensitive means that people are a bit more susceptible to certain things like fibromyalgia, the chronic pain, there, there seems to be more instances mm -hmm. of that. And Dr. Aaron has written about that in several okay. of her books. Okay. So there is some crossover, but it doesn't necessarily predict it. It just means if you have these issues, mm. you're, going to, you're going to feel them maybe to a greater degree. We have greater sort of um, intrinsic awareness of our bodies. So more we're aware maybe of when we're feeling pain or when we're feeling stress or when we're feeling off. That's fascinating. So HSP first, then layered on top of that, the trauma or the negative or the positive environment, which could potentially lead to chronic illness or, but it's not because one was first and then HSP is second. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So it, having, or being a highly sensitive person doesn't imply anything in particular. Okay. So it depends on the environment that you're in. If you happen to be in a negative environment, you're going to do far worse than average. If you have a, a job that is particularly bad for you, then you're going to suffer more than somebody else is less sensitive. It's kind of, uh, elementary proposition in a way. A good environment, very good. Bad environment, very bad for a highly yeah. sensitive person. That's fascinating. Okay, so um, one last thing I want to know is about the, the gender piece. So you're curious specifically about, and your research just led to studying um, the male experience within highly sensitive people. Take me to that, like, what drew you there and what are you seeing is it different in the male expression? Yeah, exactly. So during my dissertation study, where I interviewed up to 35 uh, people, highly sensitive people, a number of those were males. And myself being a male at the time, I was interested in how does this translate to the male experience? Because we know from sociology that the, the biggest dividing line between how we experience reality is gender. 
so whether you're male or female, it, you know, of course there are many other genders now, but um, it, it has everything to do with how you're acculturated, what you're taught about what is masculinity, what is femininity. So I was very interested in hearing about that. And, mm -hmm. and like I said, out of my dissertation kind of came three tracks. One was the career piece, one was the high sensation seeking HSPs, and the third was the highly sensitive male. And so when I finally got around to really studying that, then I wrote the book on it, Empowering the Sensitive uh, Male Soul. And I found that, you know, it follows throughout the life course. So you're starting with children and babies are actually born, uh, baby boys, I should say, are actually more sensitive than baby girls at birth, which is pretty fascinating. We only learn through culture later on to be less sensitive, to be less reactive, to be less emotional. But it doesn't mean that we don't feel it as much as a female might. Right. Well, that's fascinating to think about. So my receptivity or sensitivity as a male at birth is more than a female baby. And yet my, uh, the safety or whatever sociologically I am allowed to psychologically express that is to a lesser degree. So there is, I mean, the psychological impact when I'm thinking about this, a psychological impact for male gendered babies as they grow up to have that type of limitation, you can see where there's going to be, um, that cognitive dissonance, like that, those, the issues or the problem or the gap of what, of what I feel and what I'm allowed to feel, what's appropriate. Yeah, so one of the biggest issues that highly sensitive men express is a sense of shame that they felt growing up, that they weren't like their perhaps more masculine peers or that people shamed them for feeling differently than their peers did. So, and it, you know, the idea of hegemonic masculinity in America and Western cultures, especially, it's a pretty brutal thing. Yeah. It doesn't have a lot to do with uh, the finer emotions. It doesn't have a lot to do with empathy and compassion and nurturing and cooperating and kind of the social skills, the pro-social skills that we actually need to live together in groups. Mm -hmm. It has to do more with using brute force to get your means, to right. aggressiveness, being dominant in all situations, uh, being sexually dominant, being sort of master of all. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. sort of a brutal proposition, masculinity, but it is changing over time too. So it's kind of a misnomer to say that's exactly how it is and there's nothing right. else. Because that's why I wrote the book. I felt there right. were other books out there on uh, highly sensitive men that didn't quite express what I felt were the majority experience for highly sensitive men. And that's I felt my experience of life was a little bit closer to that um, because I grew up in the Midwest, I'm from Missouri. And so I grew up with these sort of, uh, you know, hegemonic men that were very aggressive and but at the same time, there is an undercurrent of sensitivity that you can pick up on. These people are able to express empathy. They do express compassion and compassion. They are very giving to other people at times. And sometimes it's hard to see that. So you can come from a bad situation and see the lessons that are to be learned in it, even when it comes to men, even whether they're highly sensitive or not. But my interest in it, of course, was in furthering self-awareness for highly sensitive men, because I believe that you have to become very deeply self-aware about your traits, your propensity. So you can start to develop a context for your life, something Andy alluded to, that you're developing this context about, this is why I did this, this is why I do that, or this is why I think this way or feel this way. So you start to develop this context, and then you can start to heal from the traumas. If you have traumas, you can start healing from those, and that's key. You can build good self-care practices. Uh, and then you can start adapting your life if it's not working for you. And so many HSPs and highly sensitive men tend to have the wrong career. They tend to have the wrong relationships and the wrong life. Mm. So adapting your life rather than li adapting yourself to life really is the key for sensitive men. Um, but 
when you harness it, it's really quite a, quite a beautiful trait. We, we tend to be more open. We tend to have that deep thinking capacity. We're reflective. We're innovative people. Uh, we, we tend to be deeply, deeply conscientious people that want things to be done well, mm. need things to be done well. Uh, many of us can be perfectionists at times, and that can be kind of a problem in some ways. But we tend to be really, really good conscientious people that are very good planners, very good leaders. Most of us tend to be, or the big bulk of us tend to be involved in what kind of generally can be described as the helping professions. So a lot of us are teachers, a lot of us are educators, a lot of us are in healthcare fields, things that have to do with directly impacting people's lives. That's fascinating. And we find that to be more meaningful. And that meaningful quality, that meaningful sort of aspect is key for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hearing, the need for that, that derivative, that there's some type of, of deeper meaning, not just meeting a need, but that there's, there's an actual purpose behind what it is. Um, Today, we also have Andy with us. And so, Andy, I'd love to hear kind of um, your just response to anything that Dr. Cooper's been talking about. They're like, oh, wait, me, my life. Wait, that's been my experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I could. Well, one thing I wanted, I'd, I'd love to hear you just share a little bit about that I thought was fascinating in um, that, uh, that uh, Dr. Aaron pointed out in the first uh, Highly Sensitive Person book is how she talked about um, kind of the spread of colonialization out of Europe and kind of understanding the warrior and priesthood class and how it's like, as you know, kind of looking at the colonization of America just leaned more and more warrior class where then like towards the East, we kind of saw priesthood classes still kind of inform power. And I thought that was kind of really interesting of, of how you would look at um, how, you know, leadership and power structures used to use priests to inform their decisions for how to then like govern country. And then like over time, like the need moving West, the need for that priesthood class became less and less and less and less and less, which kind of relates to why, um, America in particular, when she was studying it was predominantly extroverted versus introverted was be, it, it, it would seem that, you know, there was a relationship kind of between, between the two. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That's an interesting thought. Um, you know, it's, it can be argued that the need for settling a wilderness, I mean, it really wasn't a wilderness. It was a very well-managed uh, continent by native Americans at the time. <laughs> they managed yeah. it extremely well. I mean, they were doing just fine before we came here. But the, the need to establish uh, our kind of economy and society and culture on uh, a place that uh, was wild, I wouldn't say untamed because it was well-managed again, but the need to spread and the need to clear and have farmland and set up economies required people that were perhaps less sensitive in some ways because they had to face a lot of vagaries of the wilderness. You know, they had real issues of not only sort of wild animals to deal with, but they had each other. I mean, of course, there were there were many um, issues with groups stacking each other. Native Americans, a lot of dissent between them and settlers, so and justified at that in a lot of cases. But so it's this very uncertain time, and sensitive people. I don't know if they're necessarily as well cut out for that kind of thing, because they're going to think before they take an action. So if they're going to go west, it's going to be well planned and well coordinated. They're not going to be the kind that are going to take a shortcut we're going to uh, probably be the very first ones to do it. They're going to be the ones that have thought it out very carefully and have enough planning and provisions and have a really good idea of what they need to do to make it happen. They're going to be mm -hmm. well organized. That conscientiousness is going to kick in and they're going to be more creative about it. So yeah, it, more extroverted maybe helped at some point in time, but then as a culture changes, as the economy grows, um, then maybe the need for extroversion is a little bit less. Because we need mm -hmm. those deeper thinking people that can build industries 
that can build the culture in ways that work for everybody. So what started out as something that's sort of uh, rough can become more refined over time so that it works for more people. The idea of utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, and it's still, we still struggle with that in America. And you compare that with Eastern cultures or even some Western cultures where they are more focused on how do we care for people, our people. In America, it seems to still be highly individualistic, though sometimes there are times when Americans can pull together during emergency situations, that kind of thing. During wartime, for instance, World War II was a lot of community feeling, but community feeling seems to come and go a lot of times in America. And is that propelled by people who are highly sensitive and notice the need for it and step up as leaders? I mean, there's been a lot of historical leaders that have probably been highly sensitive people. Martin Luther King, for instance, Abraham Lincoln. Those people are considered to be most likely highly sensitive persons. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, that whole kind of thought journey was uh, just in interesting for me to process. So, um, cause I, I used to be the pastor of a church, um, and just working in, in different kind of people group constructs. Right. And, um, even talking about it in the church, I'm like, man, I don't, I, what, what an amazing revelation it might be for some pastors to realize there's such a thing as high sensitivity, you know, and then to even, and then even to step in and start a church and wonder, oh, how, how might I do church differently if I know that a fifth of the people in the room might be overstimulated mm -hmm. by loud music and lights and all these other things, you know, what, what might look different about our experiences and what might our expectations look like for how uh, people are responding to whatever it is that we're, we're doing, you know, instead of the, because um, I think that was something that was so informative for me over time was the measure for success is is largely extra extroverted and um, informed that if you are social, if you are active in your community, if you are present, if you are loud and opinionated, all of those things either reflect that you are knowledgeable or that you're important or that you have power. And, um, you know, these are all you know, common constructs I, I feel like I see are, are dictated by Western and American culture in particular. Whereas like in Japan, you know, to be quiet, to be sensitive, to be thoughtful is actually seen as the higher, you know, form of intelligence. Whereas in America, it seems flipped and it's on the opposite. And so I think processing how that was illuminated in the book was really helpful for me because it, it actually said, oh, I have a place in the world. I'm part of the priesthood class. And, and it's not that, uh, it's just that my measuring stick uh, needs to look a lot different now than however it was being informed before. Totally. Exactly. Andy, what have you gone through a specific diagnosing, like diagnostic process? Like what, what's your personal journey with or experience with yep. HSP? Um, okay. So it was, um, I, uh, I didn't go through there. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know if there's actually like a diagnosis process. I doubt I would love to explore if that's a thing. I mean, I know about the tests and I think I tested like 20 out of 27. Um, it's as far as answering that, um, uh, my kids are, you know, off the charts. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> So my, yeah, <laughs> yeah, good for me. Two, two of my boys score very high on high, on high sensitivity. So, um, my, so my personal journey is fascinating. It, the, so I was during a therapy session, I'd come into this therapy session, um, sharing how, oh yeah, well, I've, I've kind of gone through this self-diagnosis of being allergic to the cold and I, I got that figured out and actually got it diagnosed. So I, I'm actually allergic uh, to the cold. It's called cold Uthicaria. Um, and I, I break out in hives. My, my skin just goes crazy. If it drop, if I'm surfing and in the water too long, my body like kind of starts to get, actually sort of shut down and I get, I start to get like panic attacks. Well, in sharing this with my therapist, he's like, Oh, are you like, 
are you sensitive to sound? Like, do you feel like you notice light, like in a certain way? Like, how does audio affect you? I'm also a musician. And so, like, I participated in music my whole life. And we go down this kind of questioning process about just my kind of external experience of the world and other things that affect me. And he's like, oh, well, I think you might be a highly sensitive person. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, oh, you should go get this book and read it. This was December, almost two years ago to the date. I, I read that book and grinded it out in two weeks because it, it was just like what I what I, I explained to my therapist reading it was like I felt like someone was following me around my entire life writing a diary about me with all of my thoughts. But then in a way that I would read it and it's like I was reading all about myself for the first time. It's mind blowing. Yeah. And so it's and, and here's there's two major revelations I've shared about that realization one being that I spent a lot of my life convinced of having ADD, but in a way that was like undiagnosable where we couldn't deal with it. I went through one like kind of major therapy session in my early 20s, kind of uh, after a season of depression, but largely to look at, you know, do I have ADD? Because if I, if I did, I felt like it'd be an answer to a lot of things. Well, my therapist at the time, and she was wonderful, was like, and this was like right kind of at the beginning of my music career. She's like, I think, here's what I think. You don't have ADD because your ability to process information and think the way that you do. She's like, A is unmatched like anyone I've ever worked with. However, symptomatically, it looks like you have ADD. So she's like, I don't know what that means. You know, so this, and think this is, this is 2001. So this is only seven years after Dr. Elaine had even done her research. So this is still pretty new. And she's like, I don't, I, I, I would be worried to put you on meds because I don't want it to stifle your creativity and your career. And so let's just kind of work at how do we work with that information and, and just develop whatever we can out of that. Well, now reading and identifying as a highly sensitive person, I've realized I don't have ADD. I'm a highly sensitive person. Like the overstimulation that like caused what looks like symptomatic ADD is what I look like when I'm overstimulated, you know, but it's like, but from a diagnosable point of view, you couldn't diagnose me for ADD, but I look and operate like a person with ADD. So it's, it's this really interesting nuance, but being 36 years old at the time and realizing, Oh, that's gone now was just like this giant weight lifted off my back. Cause it was feeling like, how do I, how do I work with this? How do I fix this? I was constantly trying to use tools to manage like my anxiety and like my amount of energy and my inability sometimes to, um, because it wasn't an inability to focus. The problem was I get to a point and I was just dead. Like my, I was just so overwhelmed that I would just completely shut off and I don't pay attention and I don't like give attention to these other things. I only want to do what I want to do because that's there for me seeking to regain my energy back so I can kind of go on to the next thing. The second major revelation out of that was me believing I was extroverted my entire life. And what it actually meant was I was an introvert trying to be extroverted because society was telling me that that's what I was supposed to be if I wanted to be successful and I wanted to make friends and I wanted to do all of that. So with her way of really kind of breaking down the nuances of looking at introversion of like you could be introverted and want to be out and want to be out doing things and participating with society. But it doesn't like not all introverts just want to be in a dark hole all the time and completely recluse from people. So there's this different range of what that looks like. And I just realized that I was always trying to convince myself I was extroverted as a way to justify 
you know, I'm being successful in society, I'm out and about, I'm making friends, but how exhausting that would be for me over a lifetime of feeling that way, reading this book again was like this giant pressure release of like, it's okay that I don't want to be out today or that I don't want to go to a party or that like, I'll think I'll like stress about just going to a party with 10 people at it, you know, for like a day before. And I'm wondering already, when can I leave it? Or at what point in time does it feel like <laughs> I reached an emotional satisfaction where I could bail, you know, I have to have an exit. You know, they, they, they talk about that in the book too. It's like, you gotta, you go into situations having to know your exits. And like, I've, you know, through my marriage over 10 years realized like I've, I've, I get a lot of panic and anxiety with traveling because it's like all the unknown. So I have to do a lot of extra work for me to plan, um, traveling or, or doing anything else like that. So that was kind of the, uh, that was like the big kind of huge you know, aha, bang of, aha yeah. moment of two years ago that that's now sent me on this, um, entirely different way of living my life. Like, I like when you talk about the adaptations, so you're not just talking about, oh, I found out I have this thing. And so now I'm like, oh, this is the quality of my life. It's like, oh, no, this set me free. Like this helps me actually make significant changes that shift my functional experience of my life, of my marriage, of my parenting, of my employment, of all the things. I'm now in a place of power rather than feeling like I'm just being sunk by my life. Yeah, it's like one day, it's like I was studying Spanish for 20 years and wasn't able to do it. Then I woke up one day and I was perfectly fluent. I mean, that, that was like the, that was literally like the, tra like the transition of relief it felt like, where it was like, I have now so much language Ugh. for myself that I just did not have before. It was just like, my therapist was like, you ride this, she's like, he's like, without doing an IQ test, you ride this borderline genius you know, kind of like intellect. And it's just, it's, he's like, he, even for him realizing you are a highly sensitive person, it changed our entire therapy from like for the two months, you know, before he actually passed away. So it was just like, it, it reoriented everything. Yep. Like it just, it's just, it completely turned the ship. And so, but yes, and I think that's largely because what you're asking about is then the adaptation aspect. I've been working for, past 20 years trying to leverage tools that addressed like ADD symptoms with a non ADD diagnosis. So now it was like, Oh, you're using the wrong toolbox. And I was given a different one. And so I was already used to trying to, you know, manage my own self-awareness to this stuff. I just didn't have language mm -hmm. and I didn't have, you know, any kind of other, other constructs or core things to look at like, Oh, okay. The reason I won't shut up is because like I can literally think about this one thing and discuss it infinitely. <laughs> like there is nothing that bores me. I can talk about anything and I corner people unfortunately at parties and I've had to be extremely aware of that. Like I even where I stand, I realize like I never stand like where someone is looking out into a party with me. I always make sure I'm standing next to them or that I'm the one in the corner because it's like I never want to feel like oh I've boxed this person in and so it's like I've had to like I've really built into my own, like just dialogues with people making room for that person to get out. Cause I can just be there forever. That's so it's like, I just, I have to realize, Oh, I can just stop talking now. Mm. And it's not personal if they move on, you know, that's like been, uh, something interesting. That it's not personal. Yeah. Dr. Cooper, is this what you see? Like, what do you, what's your experience with real people are like, wait, their lives are being shifted because of language mastery construct diagnosis. Yeah, so learning that you're a highly sensitive person can be a revelation, and it can be something that is very freeing 
And some of the things that Andy mentioned, like uh, uh, thinking about anxiety in a new way, thinking about the need to plan things in a new way, the, the level of planning and detail that we go through and how we experience things like travel, things like uh, crowded situations, how we experience uh, casual friendships at uh, social gatherings. Those, those take so much ener more energy for us to do and to go through than it does someone that's less sensitive. And I think that's completely underappreciated. But once you have that, as Andy mentioned, you have this vocabulary then, a context within which you understand how you function. And you can then begin to adapt your life and the way you do things so that it works better for you. Rather than trying to shoehorn yourself into the, into the uh, prevailing culture, it's much easier to adapt your life. But you do have to let go of a lot of things in order to do that. And you have to be willing to be your own person because you have to be willing to stand up for the things that you need. You have to set boundaries because people will always want to cross the boundaries. So when you understand, generally you don't get learned where a boundary should be, except for people crossing and hurting you. <laughs> so, so once real. you learn those things, you learn to set yeah. the boundary, uh, reevaluate it periodically, and then maybe move it out a little bit, maybe move it in a little bit. But the boundary setting is one of the key things to kind of protecting your energetic balance each day. You only have so much energy to work with. So how you spend that is up to you, and you can spend it in any way, but if you tend to blow it all at one time, you're pretty well done for the day. You're overstimulated and overtaxed, so it's managing that budget. But if you do, you can accomplish tremendous things mm. because we are creative people. We are these deep-minded people. We are thinkers, and we are these spiritual-minded people, and we can do tremendous things once we are able to harness it and really understand it in the right way. And that kind of points to the fact that we don't do a great job of teaching people that there are differences between people. Growing up, or in college even, even if we take psychology classes, we don't have an awareness of the real differences that exist between two people and the types of people that there are in the world and an appreciation of that. And it's one of the things that always impresses me when I'm around a group of HSPs is how kind of warm and beautiful some of the people are. And these are people that I've, I've like felt a real sense of gratitude that I was able to meet this particular person. Because if I hadn't, I never would have experienced their warmth their intelligence, their, their imagination, their creativity, you know, their, their, their kind of presence that I never would have had before. Gosh, that's beautiful. Mm. It's what keeps striking me is for somebody who has been maybe suffering without realizing it or always being a square peg in a round hole to feel the exhaustion of, ah, I'm, I'm so tired by my life. But when I, hear Andy talking about his experience of, oh, no, no, this gave me life. Understanding this has allowed me to actually have more energy, have a different type of connection with people, feel like, oh, I, I've arrived, like I get it now. And I, I think it's a big hurdle for people to feel like, is this one more thing I'm going to have to look at? And it's like, oh, it's going to set you free. Exactly. It will set you free in a way. Uh, if you're able to understand it to a deep enough degree, and you're able to really let it permeate your life and, and let it simmer for a while and keep come back to it and learning about it. And one of the key things is really meeting other HSPs. That's oh. a super, it's one of the key things is you really need to know some other HSPs. And it's easier to do now than it's ever been with things like the Facebook groups. There's some wonderful HSP groups on Facebook. Uh, going to retreats, going to conferences, going to seminars. In fact, I have a men's seminar tomorrow with 34 men showing up come on wait tell me tell me more about that like, so why is that helpful to see to meet other hsps because maybe you've never met somebody that's like you 
Mm. And when you do, it's a revelation that, hey, there are people like me. If you ever seen the video from the 90s, uh, it's called uh, No Rain from Blind Melon. The B girl, right? She, she doesn't fit in. And so she gets ostracized because of it. And then she goes off on her own. She finally finds her own kind and she's dancing around with people that are just like her. It's that feeling of being around people that are like you, that accept you and understand you most of all. So they understand your need to withdraw, your need for sort of uh, unique steps that you need to take to keep your balance. And they're okay with that. So being in that presence uh, is unlike being around any other kind of person. So it's something every HSP should experience is being around another HSP. Gosh. Yeah, that rings true when I think about our need as humans to feel a sense of I'm not alone or I'm not the only one. There's that community. We're almost going back into that need. The survival need is also that need for community, that sense of in order for me to survive, I need to have other like entities. Yeah, we're a pro-social species, right? We need each other. We're, we're evolved to, to um, succeed and survive as a group, as groups. Mm -hmm. And we need different types of people in each group. It's like we need different types of family members in each family. So some of us are going to be highly sensitive. About one-fifth of us are going to be highly sensitive. The, the vast majority are going to be kind of medium sensitive. And then there's going to be some low to no sensitive people at the other end of it. So sensitivity is kind of a general construct that it's really uh, permeates all people, but there's going to be about a fifth of us that are highly sensitive. And that provides a little bit of an advantage that helps the entire group. It's coming to appreciate that in a modern world, that is the real problem and the real trick. Because we live in such a loud, fast paced, crazy sort of world. How do you ever get heard? Yep. You know, how do you ever get mm -hmm. seen? Being seen and heard is one of the big things for highly sensitive people. So many of us feel like we're not seen and we're not heard. So being seen and heard by other highly sensitive people can be a profound experience. Mm -hmm. Andy, and, and think okay. about that. One out of five people. Like, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. That's, that's 20% of our culture, like, is, is a, it's HSPs and they don't know it. You know, like, how mm -hmm. many people, you know, when you, have, you actually look at the numbers of, like, out of those, how many people actually know that? you know that are that are in it it's got it's got to be outrageously marginal i mean because it's just at any any uh granted at any gathering you look around and you just kind of like count you know start counting and you're just like okay 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 i mean there's a lot of us here you know if you really think about that Hi, you guys. Elise here, your podcast host for TrailerCast podcast. And I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that TrailerCast is also available on Patreon. And if you don't know what Patreon is, it's a special community for creatives. And it is a way to support the people that are behind the microphone or um, on the Zoom call or, or doing these things called podcasts. So if you have um, been affected by TrailerCast and feel like contributing to the show and the making of the show, um, I'd be grateful. So if you are interested, you can check out trailercast.com or search us on Patreon. Thanks, guys. You mentioned like both of your sons are like also off the scale. So you feel is there any form of like genetic component, environmental component? Like what are why are we what's going on with the family? You know, what how can we understand that? Yeah, so actually, uh, I guess you were asking me, but I actually have four kids of my own. I had two boys and two girls. And I've never really understood yet that any of them are highly sensitive or not. I don't know if they've come around to that because they're all from uh, 20 to 30. 
I think my youngest son is highly sensitive. He's identified as such, and he's mm -hmm. sort of starting on that learning journey. And it's a long journey, you know, and luckily he has a dad that can teach him something mm -hmm. and has some mm -hmm. books available. He's in kind of a lucky position, but totally. So mm -hmm. coming from a family, uh, you know, where you have a highly sensitive person within it, for the most part, you're going to be, you're not going to be acknowledged. You're not going to be understood very well. I mean, most of us grow up, particularly boys, not being understood for our sensitivity. Um, if they understand it as sensitivity, a lot of times people will understand a highly sensitive boy as temperamental, as some a child that has a bad temper that's irritable. And they won't attribute it to anything else. It's like Andy was talking about. It gets tangled up with other things. And kind of teasing that apart is quite a process. Mm. So understanding that it's not ADHD, that it's not a, a pathology, that it's a normal, naturally occurring human trait that is not something that's in the DSM. It's not something that a psychologist can diagnose you with right. because it's not a pathology of any sort. Uh, so when you understand that, you can come to appreciate it in a different way and say, oh, this is how some people are meant to be mm. because it's an advantage. Even within families, there's going to be, you know, if you had five kids, there's going to be one that's probably highly sensitive. Because that's nature's gamble is to not hedge its bet on one strategy. Mm -hmm. And it's very complex looking, too, because my two boys that are operate very differently. You know, one, like one has more of the, uh, you know you know temperamental kind of like thing where he he's a bit more like loud and emotionally eruptive with like his day-to-day -day. so he's like riding that line where the like the other boy has so much revealed intuition i mean it's like he i always say he came out of the womb with thoughts because you like would look at him and you're like there is no end to what that boy is thinking right now it is just going and going and going and going and it shows in how quickly he learned to speak and in the questions he asks in like the way he views the world i mean you can just like you can see that aspect of it where it's like, oh man, you just, you, you're taking everything in and trying to process it. And, you know, he's, um, he's five, he turns six tomorrow. And it's like, he, um, it's interesting over time to watch, like as a younger child, he was very much like the louder one crying a lot. Like he actually, he wouldn't let me hold him for, I mean, like nine months. Like I could barely really hold him well. Um, he'd only want his mom, but it's just, but now it's just that all, all of that has like kind of subsided. So it's not like you can just kind of throw the labels on it and it's just it. I mean, I would look at my two, uh, two of my three boys and I'd say like, well, no, no, they're very different, but it's just like, when you look at kind of all the spectrum of high sensitivity, obviously there's just certain attributes and parts of the trait that are going to reveal themselves more and less. It's just the ebb and flow kind of, it's all part of the organic, um, aspect of their development. But it's like, all those things collectively said, I can look at both of them and be like, oh no, they're definitely highly sensitive boys. I can, I mean, I feel pretty confident about that, but that means then it's just, okay, like how do I, and this is one of the, one of the things I'm really curious about where I, I, I haven't seen a whole lot on is actually like highly sensitive parenting, like being a highly sensitive parent, because um, that's where uh, you're kind of transitioning from, from my boys. Like I have, I have struggled because I felt like, okay, if I want to set my boundaries and one of my boundaries might be, I'm totally imploding right now. I'm completely overwhelmed. And what I really want to do is go walk for like an hour outside of my house. Well, leaving my wife with four screaming kids and all of that kind of stuff. It just, that doesn't just feel like an option. 
right? And so then, but then when it doesn't feel like an option, then there's that feeling of tr- being trapped in it and that you're also overwhelmed at the same time. And it's just, you, 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 you feel like you can't catch your breath. Like you're just, you're kind of just drowning in it. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm curious about a, you know, for, for folks my age out there, like what resources have you come across that kind of goes that goes directly at like if you're highly sensitive and you're a parent, here's some of the the nuance of that and, and what it what does that look like or what have you seen out there for that? Yeah, well, luckily I can say that uh, there's actually a brand new book out by Dr. Elaine Aaron called The Highly Sensitive Parent. So that it just did it just come out like this year or it, did it, it just come out this year? I believe. Yeah, <laughs> okay, so it's brand it. new. So, so it's a great book to pick up on. It's a great resource. But uh, yeah, highly sensitive parenting is definitely the best way to challenge yourself as a sensitive person simply because it's going to it's going to cause you to come into focus on do you have boundaries what do you do in complex situations like when kids are misbehaving when particularly when they're younger but also later when they're teenagers gets to be can be quite difficult to deal with depending on the child and each child is different absolutely different even if they're highly sensitive i mean each child is an absolutely unique individual and how you relate to them is going to be uh, deeply is going to be individual with each one. And the relationship you form is really important to that highly sensitive child if it is highly sensitive. So allowing mm-hmm. the time for it um, is thinking about those four core aspects again. You know, the deep thinking, the overstimulation, the high empathy, the subtle cues. That all requires time and space. So if we can give our kids the time and space to think things through, to experience things and have that be okay, whether it's a, an emotion or a feeling or a thought, to not shut them off from the things that are natural and normal for them, but yet to teach them things like boundaries so that they don't let other people walk all over them, yep. you know, uh, people that will take advantage of them. Um, and we teach them how or what their trade is actually about, how they could utilize it, how they can harness it, put it to work. Then we can do them a real service. But being a highly sensitive parent for yourself as a parent is quite a difficult job for sure. So it will test mm-hmm. your, your ability to care for yourself, your ability to de-escalate your ability to de-stress and to maintain over time. And I guess the good news is if you're a two-parent family, you don't have to do it all. You can share some of that burden out or some of that, yeah. some of the chores out, some of the tasks out that have to be done. And so thinking of it is I, I only need to do part of the work. If you're a single parent, it's a bit more difficult because you do have to think in terms of I have to be both parents at once, which could be quite, quite, quite taxing for anybody, highly sensitive or not. But a sensitive person is going to think more about it, going to feel things more deeply. Mm-hmm. Totally. But in the long run, in the long run, when your kids are growing up like mine are, mine are between 20 and 30 now, all four, I could say that, you know, best thing I've ever done in my life is to have mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. and be a parent. Mm-hmm. One of the most privileged things I've ever been able to do is be a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, kind of with uh, going along kind of with looking at our kids a little bit through that lens, can you... Um, share some thoughts on kind of the stigma of shyness and kind of like that language that we've uh, kind of cultures just really had as, as, as far as uh, how we've looked at, you know, kids in classes and the way we've approached the world. Yeah, there is a stigma with shyness. Uh, and I was a shy kid myself growing up, man, an extremely shy kid. I was the kid that would never speak in class, though I knew the answers. I was the kid that went to recess and I was a lot along the fence walking around the perimeter. I was never really wanted to be part of the group, never wanted to be part of the game. So I was very good athletically. Um, I never really wanted to be in the middle where all the commotion was going on, unless I could really have a chance to do something individual. So we tend to be better at individual sports. We tend to do things that we can excel at individually and think about and not necessarily have to be a big part of a group. But being part of that group is fine. It's not really a problem. It's just acculturating ourselves to that and learning to care for ourselves. But sensitive children 
they tend to not necessarily know themselves well unless they come from this supportive background that can help them uh, provide this sort of firm foundation to build on. So if the parents are kind of well-adjusted and well-adapted, then it's going to be much better for the children. But if you're not adapted well and you're, you're struggling with things yourself, then that can bleed over to your children, them learning those kinds of bad habits that they then take it with them into adult life. So one of the keys with highly sensitive people is we have to start very, very young. And shyness gets built into us a, a lot of times very early. A lot of us are naturally shy. 70% of us are more introverted. 30% of us are more extroverted. So the majority of highly sensitive people are shy. By nature, we tend to be more inhibited. So we tend to shy away from things and observe. We don't tend to be the ones that want to be a center of attention by nature. That's not our nature. So when you see a great figure like Martin Luther King or someone that's out there speaking in public to 100,000 people, that's an amazing accomplishment for that person. That person may have been feeling inside, not how they were looking on the outside. I mean, literally every time I do an interview, every time I do something that is social media or record something, inside is a totally different story than what you see on the outside. Mm. As a naturally shy, sort of socially awkward person, the ability to be a, become a performer, that's a different thing. And Andy, you probably know something about that with music. We can mm -hmm. become very good performers, but it takes time to learn how to do that. And that's yes. what I would encourage people that feel excessively shy, that feel excessively anxious about social situations is build your skills kind of one little bit at a time. Take on little things. One of the ways that I learned um, to be less shy and to be able to manage the things I wanted to be able to do was I coached my kids' sports teams as a coach. That's <laughs> and cool. it was natural for me to do that. And that was kind of a oh. low-risk thing, right? It didn't seem like a big thing to most people. But to a shy person, man, that's like a crazy thing to do. But it taught me oh, to I be felt... confident in that. Andy, mm. remember? Oh, it was... yeah, she at least knows. Cause so I, I, I assisted coach it. I assist coach it. I I was the coaching assistant. I don't have the word. <laughs> yes, I was an assistant coach for our kids' uh, t uh, you know t-ball team, and I gotta tell you, like I was I was a nightmare inside. <laughs> you know, I mean, talk about like learning to perform something differently. Like that's the interesting thing now. You know, knowing what I know is, I've. I guess I am a performer generally like I've learned to perform I can perform as a podcaster I can perform as a musician I can perform even as a pastor like I can look like I'm supposed to be something that's expected and that's that's skill, skill. whatever mm -hmm. however you know I felt like going into this I'm like I'm I'm performing like an assistant t as an assistant t-ball coach to my kid <laughs> and so it just that whole environment everything about that I hated oh I hated it so much I'm like I need this I have to do this because like it means a lot to my kid and it's it should be fun to do and it's a way to be involved in the community but so much of it inside felt awful and I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I hate everything about this. And like, I don't, cause it's like, it's hard because I actually like, I like sports in general. Like I played hockey growing up. I, I skateboard and I snowboard and I do a lot of those more individualistic sports things. And I actually don't mind even team things, but I think that I, mean, I played baseball growing up, but I think there's, I, there's all of the unset expectation of like what the coach's role is. And man, I just, I, I just felt like such a fish out of water doing that whole thing what it looked like on the outside i have no idea great you know but it was like, awesome it, andy it... <laughs> <laughs> but that might be the perception piece again right it's like if i am yeah if i am highly aware of other people's cues i might be interpreting those cues as if i am doing something other and so we can other ourselves it sounds like is what i'm yeah. you know really really hearing 
Yeah. I do. Yeah, that's a sociological concept called the yes. looking glass theory, right? With Cooley, that we we perceive ourselves based on what we think other people think or perceive us to be. Yes. So we tend to live up to those expectations and being something like a coach, stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit is really important for sensitive people. Even though it's a heck of a lot more comfortable to be in your little shell, it's more fulfilling for you and you will grow. You usually have pretty strong developmental potential within you, but you won't get anywhere unless you really are able to push yourself. And one of the ways is to build your self-esteem, build your self-confidence, try those little things you can succeed at. And over time, you're gonna feel a lot less anxious about taking on anything. Mm -hmm. And if you feel that anxiety that at going to an event, be brave for one more minute. And once that event starts, you're not gonna feel it. You're gonna yeah. go right into it. And you're not gonna feel it anymore. And you'd be amazed how much, how much that helps. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cooper, I have another question about the sensation seeking. That was something you you mentioned, but I'd like to know more. Sure, absolutely. So uh, about 30% of highly sensitive people are also high in another naturally occurring personality trait called sensation seeking, right? And it has four core aspects too, and they're actually quite dichotomous to being a highly sensitive person. Um, the first of which is thrill and adventure seeking, and people will latch onto that one as being descriptive. So people who like the physical thrills, skydiving, bungee jumping, things like that, uh, driving a fast race car, that kind of thing. The second would be novelty and new experience seeking. So seeking new experiences for the sake of doing that, traveling to new places, uh, new cooking experiences, those kinds of things. Um, the third one would be boredom susceptibility. So high sensation seekers tend to be easily bored. We tend to fall asleep very easily with things that are boring, boring people, boring situations, tend to not do so well. We tend to be in our need uh, within an optimal level of arousal. We have a range. We need to stay within that range. The last uh, sort of fourth aspect of sensation seeking is disinhibition. So just the opposite of being inhibited with a, with a sensitive person, disinhibition is the opposite. So, you know, things like driving a car very fast, uh, attending parties, kind of behaviors that might go, might be illegal or yeah. immoral, but they'll do it anyway for the thrill, for the sensation of it. And there are certain genes that are identified with sensation seeking. It has to do with the uh, dopamine uptake pathway in the brain, the pleasure mm -hmm. pathway. Yeah. So those things that give us excitement also give us a little hint of that dopamine rush to the brain. And so you want to do it more and you want to get bigger thrills. And, and But it can be more healthily expressed when you think about the novelty and the new experience seeking, because that's not necessarily a problem. But when any trait is expressed too high at too much of an extreme degree, it tends to be unhealthy. Mm. A more moderate high expression tends to be a healthy expression of the trait. So, so it, I was going to ask with that, so that to, to help me out with understanding this because this is where I, I've I've I'm familiar with the the language but I'm not familiar with like I, I've been I haven't spent enough time with it are we saying that you can be highly sensitive and high sensation or there's a difference kind of between the two it's mainly that you might be mostly high sensation it's not sensitivity but it's rather that it's sensation seeking you can be both actually yeah like myself I'm a high sensation seeking highly sensitive person and learning that was really important because for me, learning about high sensitivity wasn't the whole picture. There was another part of me that was driven, uh, seemed to be harder, driven creatively in a way that most HSPs are not quite as driven. And that for me needed to be explained in some way. It mm -hmm. wasn't uh, something I could really find a satisfactory explanation for. So I learned that about 30% of uh, highly sensitive people are also high in sensation, sensation seeking. And though that seems dichotomous, it actually works out okay when you think about it because the two crossovers that sensitive people tend to identify with are the boredom susceptibility. If you're highly sensitive, you also tend to have a problem with boredom. 
That is, hmm. you look for interesting things. I mean, you have a deep mind. You want it to be engaged. Maslow said our capacities beg to be engaged. And when they're not, we suffer for it. So we tend to not seek out things that are intrinsically boring. We tend to not seek out intrinsically boring people or situations. We tend to take mm. on new things. Um, the other one is the uh, novelty and new experience seeking. So a lot of highly sensitive people, particularly those who had supportive environments, tend to seek out novelty and new experience for its own sake. You know, we tend to love those mm -hmm. new experiences for just for the sake of doing them, uh, whether it's food or travel or people. Mm -hmm. How can we see, I mean, th the best way to seek out novelty and new experiences with other people because mm -hmm. we're pro-social. I mean, we're wired to benefit from being around other people. So what higher mm -hmm. sensation or better sensation can you get than being from new, around new people who are novel to you? You're, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, as I hear you, yeah. Because as as I hear you talk, I mean, I, I definitely feel like I identify with all four of those, and I just I haven't really gone there. And, and when I've heard the term and it's spoken, I'm like, okay, that's some of that stuff is kind of clicking in. The interesting part though is the boredom thing for me. I'm actually challenged by boredom. Like it, it's almost that's part of like the sensitivity of like, well, I can make a situation not boring, or like, right. oh, I wonder, like, and I I think it's more, I it's it's probably just a functional and operative thing, like where if I know I'm going into a boring situation, I can turn on that part of my mind of like endless depth, and just kind of experience it, and I don't get bored because I'm kind of in, I'm like solving the problem i'm like okay I, for other people it's probably why i podcast you know because it's just like i i can listen to someone who's seemingly boring and find it completely interesting but to someone else they're going to be like how do you even listen to that for hours i'm like are you kidding me it's that's thrilling but the but everything else like you know novelty i mean playing in a band and playing loud music being on stage i mean all like i mean that i'm driven definitely by the the actual physical you know sensation sensationalism of all of that traveling terrifies me but when i do it i love it you know when i i do explore and do new things i mean they're definitely you know notches i'm putting onto things and i, I yeah. do i do love it so it's i'll have to kind of explore that a bit more it's Dr. Cooper, I'd love your input on this case. So Andy, we went to Joshua Tree together and we were going to go rock climbing, right? Like the whole harness, the whole situation, not just bouldering, but like do the, the thing. Um, some of the HSP things I feel like, mm, I don't know if I'm totally there, but then I'm like, oh, I'm highly thrill seeking, highly novelty seeking. All I'm like, boom, boom as high, 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 high. I want to meet strangers. I want to, I want to talk to new people. I want to go places I've never been. I'm always the first to raise my hand. Oh, you need to see if the ballet works. I'll go up first. Oh, I can jump off of this. I'm a hundred percent jumping off of this. All of a sudden my I'm in energy's up. I'm engaged and I'm like full. We might get to the same behavior, Andy. Like we might both like get up there on the rock and do this. You're, you're like, I have trepidation until I get there that I'm okay. And I'm like, if I can't get there fast enough. Mm -hmm. So it might look different, but even though we get to the same spot. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. That, yeah. Dr. Cooper, is there consistency there? Or is that like, is that synonymous or is that, would you say there's, there's a, there's a difference in looking at those two differently? Uh, well, let's look at it through the ancestral lens again. So sensation seeking adapted in our ancestral environment. Again, sensation seeking being the kind of propensity to rush forward and have that new experience. So if you're in the wild and you're living in a tribe and something is interesting on the horizon, you're going to want to run up and check it out because you're wired to get that little dopamine hit in the mm -hmm. brain if you go do that, right? That's, that's novelty. That's even thrill-seeking. Um, whereas the sensitive person is going to pause to check. So they're kind, of, they're kind of different mechanisms, right? One is to think before you take an action. So the HSP mm -hmm. is going to hang back a little bit and watch because he doesn't know what's happening up there. He's not going to run forward like that. He's not going to take that risk. Not necessarily risk averse, but he's going to take a safe risk. He's going to take a safer risk mm. 
the sensation seeker doesn't really care. They they want the thrill, the adrenaline rush. And so they think it's safe, but they'll, they'll go ahead and take that risk, acknowledging anyway. the fact that it is real risk. And sometimes it costs them their life. It could cost them injuries. <laughs> there, could, there could be financial you know, uh, uh, consequences. There could be legal consequences. They could cause themselves a lot of problems by taking these risks. So yeah. it counterbalances when you think of the two together, yeah. the cautionary mechanism from the sensitivity part, if you are both sensation seeking and high in sensitivity, they counterbalance each other. If you pay attention yeah. to the sensitive side and it doesn't just get overwhelmed and steamrolled by the high sensation seeking, which tends to happen. People who are high in sensation seeking tend to steamroll the other part of ourselves. And mm. that's really unhealthy mm. because it's still there and it still needs to be acknowledged and honored because it is very important. But when you can put the two mm. together, it's the best of both worlds. I really mm. believe that. I mean, you're, mm. you have a driven sense of creativity. You know, you have this need to push forward kind of no matter what. Yep. And so we tend, to, we tend to be the really high achieving people that really do the big things. But we can also spectacularly mm. crash at the same time. So putting the two mm. together means you're deep thinking, you're better planning, you're conscientious, you're perhaps a perfectionist. You're good at actually building social capital. And those to mm. be things that all are really good when it comes to new ventures, new initiatives. But there's an obvious toll, like, too. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of realizing in this conversation, I, you know, whatever happened, something like in my mid-20s. So I have this tattoo on my wrist that says uh, Fertissimo Vivaci, which is very loud and lively. And, um, you know, I realized, though, kind of transitioning some career stuff in my mid-20s, it's almost like hearing you talk about this, it's almost like I... I became more sensitive at that time, not became, but it, it almost, almost like this thing unlocked and I didn't know what it was because I, I stepped back. Like when I kind of got out of touring and doing music, I felt like I, I, it, it almost like saved me because it was like sensation was the thing driving me all through my life up to my early twenties. And it almost felt like my body told me you're exhausted. You know, and it's like, it's, you actually don't have to be loud and lively. You're allowed to step back and be thoughtful and to take things slow and to be patient and to, to sit and watch and to like, and, and do all of that. And in a, a interesting, I think that's kind of been that interesting, like that feeling of the dichotomy is where I'm like, I know intrinsically, physically what I like to do, what gives me energy, what I get really excited about. And also there's that anchoring aspect of the sensitivity part where I'm like, Oh no, no, I'm definitely like, I will process whether something seems really risky to do or not. And I'll give, I'll give myself a pat on the back and call it wisdom. If it turns out, Oh, that was really <laughs> risky. But then I might be the one who lost out on, on seeing the sunset over that Ridge. And I'll just have to be like, well, there's, there's a sunset every day. So whatever, like I'll convince myself out of like the, the loss of not getting that sensation to that experience, but also simultaneously I'll, I'll hear the novelty of an idea where like, so I got, I live at the bottom of, of a hill in my back of my house. That is my property. It's like, you know, three fourths of an acre. I know if I go to the top of that hill, I get to see the sunset. But like every time I think about doing it, I sit there and think about all the reasons not to, <laughs> you know, it's just like, well, I got to hop that fence and what are the kids going to do? And like, <laughs> it takes like 15 minutes to get up there. Do I have the energy for that? I mean, it's just like, I'm, I'm going through this whole bodily kind of thought of if I really want to do it, but I hear at least just being like, I'm just going to go. I mean, even my wife would just be like, we'll just, we're just going to go, whatever. Mm -hmm. No one's going to die. You right, know, and so right. it's right. I'm also curious, like just like neurobiologically, what happens at the mid twenties, um, the rest of your prefrontal cortex developing, the, the brain chemistry kind of 
for lack of better words, kind of leveling out, that there's a sense of, oh, my whole self is kind of here now. And so I do have more of that executive sense of, Mm. I don't like that. Mm. And I'm okay to say that because I'm also a little more comfortable in who I am. So to say, well, what if that's not for me? And all of a sudden I'm more aware that it doesn't all have to be for me, even if everybody thinks that that is me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sensation seeking tends to peak around 18 years old, and then it tends to decline over time with with uh, as we age. But what tends to remain, according to the uh, Dr. Marvin Zuckerman, who originated the trait, is boredom susceptibility. So we have that to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> sensitivity. <laughs> sensitivity is just the opposite. It tends to increase with age. We tend to be more aware of ourselves, and kind of what you're alluding to, alluding to at least mm-hmm. with um, the fact that we know ourselves better. We have better executive function. Mm-hmm. And then we start thinking in a more serious way about who we are, who we want to be. Yep. And then sensitivity mm-hmm. starts to assert itself over time, and then yep. we come to appreciate it. But so many of us don't know ourselves very well until midlife. Yes. Uh, Doctor mm. Doctor Aaron has said that that so many of us just don't do a lot until we reach midlife and then yep. we just bang we just go all of a sudden and do all kinds of things but yeah, yeah. we spend so long in the wow. wrong career the wrong relationships the the wrong life and we don't really figure it out until midlife hence the crisis <laughs> yeah <laughs> right <laughs> so for people that are listening that are like okay this might be me, or this might be my partner, or this might be my kid. Um, where's the best spot for them to go right away on the internet or on Instagram? Like, where's the best spot for them to get um, accurate information, helpful information? Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Elaine Aaron's website is really one of the best. She has a lot of her research on there for free. The 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 uh, highly sensitive person self test is on there. Okay. And that's highlysensitiveperson.com, hs.com, I believe. Or you can find her easily by typing in Elaine Aaron. It's, it'll take you right to it. Or you can type in highly sensitive person scale. It's on the line everywhere. Just make sure it's like the 27, 28 version test or question Perfect. test. Perfect. And if you identify kind of as 14 questions or more, then you can kind of think of yourself as highly sensitive. Men tend to score lower because of those kind of cultural teachings about being less sensitive, particularly cry easily. Most men won't admit that they feel those emotions. So they'll tend to answer some questions uh, culturally biased. Right. So men, it's kind of thinking that if you answer 10 or more as like you, then you're probably highly sensitive, but it depends on which ones, mm-hmm. you know, you can answer even less than that. And if you're really, uh, answering sort of the emotional ones, then maybe you are highly sensitive. It's really a matter of personal, um, decision okay. as to whether you think that you're highly sensitive and what that can mean to your life. You know, what does it matter if you're highly sensitive? What is the, the what if factor or the what about it? So you have to do something with that knowledge. And that's all that really matters. You can find out about it and you can get a book or two. You can read about it unless you put it into action and start adapting your life and come to appreciate it, but without dwelling on it too much because we do have our lives to live, right? Yes. And we shouldn't put labels on ourselves so much. Uh, Just be who you are. You know, Mm -hmm. you're Andy and Elise and I'm Tracy and we just live our lives. We happen to be highly sensitive or high sensation seeking, but go out (laughs) and express that in a world and, and sort of really confident ways that you can own and do spectacular things. Mm-hmm. I love it. So, so people are going to go to the website, take this test, and they identify or self-identify as a highly sensitive person. What then? What would be the next step for a person who says, I don't want to just be stuck in a label. I would like to you know, reorient. I'd like to be able to do something about this. Where would you say they go next? Yeah, there's so many more resources today than there have been in the past. But I think probably the best quick introduction to sensory processing sensitivity is to go view the, the documentary film that came out in 2015, it's called Sensitive, the Untold Story. 
And it's really the best quick introduction to the trait. Awesome. Um, and it covers a variety, and I'm in it actually a couple of times, and a lot of other researchers are in the same movie. Dr. Ooh. Elaine Aaron is in it. Um, it's really a wonderful movie that encapsulates the whole trait in a sort of brief time period. For, particularly good for people that don't read books. That don't have the, <laughs> if you're a sensation seeker, you probably don't read a lot of books. You're hard to pin down because you're busy doing things all the time. So that movie is a great introduction, and you can watch it in two or three bits and get through it. But Perfect. it's a great introduction. There's a couple other movies, Sensitive and In Love, that was just put out, I believe, this year, and Sensitive Lovers. So those are all three kind of uh, three movies that are really good, that have been very well done by Will Harper. Um, he used to direct the Oprah Show. He's really fantastic, Emmy Award-winning producer. Does some great work for highly sensitive people. It is going to be at my seminar tomorrow as a faculty teaching oh, with highly it. sensitive men. So it's going to be cool. It's going to be Brilliant. really cool. That's so cool. Dr. Tracy, thank you. You're welcome. Absolutely. Okay. So that... After that interview, I was like, I need to go take this test right now. <laughs> so um, if I don't know if you did that too. If so, please tell me your results. I scored 22 for the highly sensitive person. And then I had to go on to the sensation seeker self-test, which I scored 19 out of 20. That doesn't surprise me at all, but it was a very fascinating layer to this conversation in regards to looking at the dichotomous relationship between the highly sensitive person and the person who is highly sensation seeking. Anyway, since hearing that episode, what do you think? Do you know highly sensitive people? Are you highly sensitive? Are your kids highly sensitive? Is it helpful for you to see that there is language and tools and agency that comes from understanding. I think that was what was most impactful for me was seeing that the understanding of this collection of traits leads to agency, autonomy, freedom, satisfaction. So I think that is another myth that we experience when we look at the field of psychology is that if someone gives me a label or a box, it's a sentence rather than a, a door. This isn't a jail cell. This is a way out. That's the point of any information about your life. If we can identify your trauma, if we can point to anxiety, if we can give you the language to understand your experience as a human being, you will be able to have mastery and agency so you can move to a deeper sense of who you are, deeper satisfaction, more agency over your life. How fantastic is that? How much better does that feel than just being in the murky waters of, I don't know why I feel this way. I feel like I'm the only one. I feel stuck and like there's nothing I can do. This interview is the whole point. It shows the whole story of what happens when people get curious about their, what it's like, their experience as human beings. And as they begin to put language and research and, and words to this, that other people begin to find themselves too. So if you hear anything from this episode, I hope that you can begin or continue to be open to understanding all the different ways that you get to be free. That a diagnosis is not the end of the story. It is often the beginning of life. If you are diagnosed with anxiety, 
what you should be getting are resources and tools and a way out. If you experience depression, that is not like, oh, that's just it now forever. No, the point, the purpose of all of this information is transformation. Okay, soapbox. (laughs) Highly sensitive people. The seeking for meaning, the seeking um, how this all connects and relates, how a fifth of the population is experiencing this and doesn't know it. I was blown away. Ultimately, I would like to just have this conversation again and again and again and find out how many people um, ended up taking the self-test and figuring out more about themselves. So if you do end up taking this test, will you hit me up on Instagram and let me know what your results were? Um, two other things I wanted to kind of hit on. Andy talked about it earlier in the episode, the difference between implicit and explicit awareness that he was talking about how he implicitly knew something. No, sorry. It wasn't Andy. It was Dr. Dr. Cooper. He was talking about his journals and how he had written down like, Oh, she is sensitive like me, or he is sensitive like me and recognizing that trait in someone else and how there's, we know something and then we understand something and we confirm what we know. And I think that's a really, that was a really key point that you might have a knowing about yourself or your partner or your children, and you might know, and then you're going to understand the definition of HSP and be like, oh, now I know. I have that awareness is not just something that is beyond language within me. There's actual language for it, and I can see it outside of myself. So um, I would love for you to kind of try on that lens as far as implicit and explicit knowledge and consider your story, your life, your experience, your symptoms, your traits, all of that through that lens of what you know and now what you really do know. Um, Other than that, um, the biggest, what I kept writing down was there's impact here, there's room for adaptation, and that diagnosis is a form of freedom, that all of this allows us to reorient to reposition ourselves in a way that we just like, oh, okay, so now I know I need more time by myself. Now I know I need um, headphones in the car. (laughs) Now I know I need, and then I do that because I'm an adult who's able to do those things so that way I'm able to be in my life with a greater sense of satisfaction and ease. Oh, and guess what? Everyone else is better in my life because of that? Cool. Like that's what we do when we start to get healthier, right? Is we take the steps to take care of our needs and other people benefit too. This is not selfish work. It's very selfless to take care of these things so that the whole system functions better. So if you're thinking about this and curious, think about the different ways, whether you are a highly sensitive person or not, that you take care of yourself, that you make room for yourself, that you take care of your needs, that you have boundaries, that you seek out language that makes sense for you so that you understand yourself, so that we understand you, so that the whole thing gets better. That's the idea of community here. We're all at the table, you guys. Every one of us. And so the the more aware you are of who you are, the more we get to know you. So thank you for your listening and thank you for your ears and your heart and all the different ways that you you run this information through you. I appreciate you being here and listening. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to TrailerCast with Elise Snipes. Visit TrailerCast.com to listen to all of our recorded episodes, sign up for Patreon to offer support for the show and get access to group sessions, extra bonus episodes and content, and our private Instagram account, where we continue to grow the TrailerCast community. Follow Elise on Instagram at EliseSnipes underscore collective and learn more about her work at EliseSnipes.com. Lastly, we'd love for you to take a moment and review the show on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Cheers and see you next time. Cheers.